podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Pauly, and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that January 12th through the 18th, Hillbilly Horror Stories will be doing our Lifetime Patreon Membership Drive. You'll just go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. There will be a PayPal link to be able to donate $50. In exchange, we will give you a link that you will paste into whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, and that will give you complete access to every episode that we've ever done, which is over 500 episodes so far. It will also get you two full monthly episodes that are only for Patreon users. It will get you 24 short episodes every single month, as well as ad-free versions of all the regular episodes that we put up throughout the week on the free feed. After this donation, you will never have to spend another penny on any of the Patreon services offered as long as we're doing this show and we have no intentions on stopping anytime soon. If you're already a current Patreon subscriber, yes, you can stop your subscription and donate the $50 and receive the full benefits and be able to save yourself a couple of bucks throughout the year. This will also entitle you to lifetime 20% off discount on any and all merchandise. You just have to contact us first so we can make the changes in the system. Thank you guys so much for everything you do for us. We love you. We thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 178 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. I'm Tracy. Are you excited for Christmas? You getting there? Yeah, I'm starting to get there. Awesome. Yeah. Y'all heard the commercial uh, just here a little bit ago about the Patreon drive that we're doing for the Lifetime uh, Patreon support. And I just want to make sure that everybody is clear this is not going to take place on Patreon's site. They don't have a way to be able to do a one-time pay and get it free. They would charge you, if you sign up on there for $50, they would charge you $50 every month. Holy crap. And we don't want that. No. So, um, like it said in the little advertisement we did, when we do that, which will be the week of the 12th to the 18th of January... That week, you will go to our regular website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and right there, plastered on the main page, will be a uh, link that'll say, PayPal. it'll be a PayPal link, and that's where you will pay the $50. Mm-hmm. And then we will send you a link that you will paste into your uh, player, podcast player, and that will give you all of the episodes, past, present, and future. 
on uh, on there. So every time a new one comes out, you'll automatically get it, and you'll never have to worry about anything else. But that's the only way we could do it is do it on the website separate than Patreon. Yeah, yeah. So I hope you guys yeah. enjoy that. I hope you really do. But I know a couple of you already tried to sign up, and I had to get you to go ahead and take it down because it would have charged you fifty dollars, and then yeah. I didn't want that to happen. That's that's no, not the intention. Uh, no. I mean, we'll take fifty dollars a month. <laughs> So it wants to do that, but no, it's the, the, the goal obviously is to get you guys, uh, all the benefits for as cheap as possible. So that's yeah. the only way we can do it. Cause we just love you and we want you in, we just want you in our lives. Yes. We Thank do. You for that. Okay. Wow. This story tonight, it's going to be one of those right off the bat. I'm going to tell people most of the story is pretty easy going. The end is pretty horrible. It's kind of similar to the Zach and Addie story where most of the story was fine, but the ending was mm. something some people wouldn't want to hear. So Great. Let's so just give that around uh, yeah, Christmas time. I, I'm well. just giving you, the, giving you the heads up before we get into the story that it, you know if you're squeamish, it might not be one of those stories that you want to listen to. So Can I leave the room now? You cannot. So before we get into it, obviously, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, especially this time of year, for everything you do. Thank you for allowing us to live in free societies Yes, and to be able to do things like sit in our bedroom and record a podcast because you guys are putting your life on the line every single day. If you're in the military, if you're a police officer, if you're a fireman, and for you people that are doctors and nurses and just take care of us, we couldn't function as societies if you guys weren't there for us. Boy, ain't that the truth. We just want to say thank you for keeping us safe. We always pray for you guys every day, and we love you. Absolutely. Obviously, we've touched on this a lot this time of year. Um, it's the time of year where depression really ramps up in a lot of people. And we just want you to know that if you're having a rough time, pull somebody aside and talk to them. There is zero shame in that. That is what most of your friends, coworkers, family members would want you to do. You may not feel that way, but that's the case. They want you to. We're telling you we want you to. We don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Nope. Send us a message. Give us a call. Call somebody. We please, promise. Please. We promise people want you around. Please do it. If for some reason you would rather talk to somebody more anonymous, there is the suicide uh, prevention line here in town, or in the United States, I should say, 1-800-273-8255-741-741. If you're more of a texter, that number will get you straight through. And in several months, I guess it'll take forever for them to get it through, we'll have a three-digit code to oh, be able I to call know. in the United I States. I know. For, you know, mental help. Yeah. We hope y'all don't have to use that number, but it's there if you do. And like I said, uh, reach out to our group, uh, and you can call anybody, anytime, us especially. We don't care what time it is. Just reach out to us, please. Yep, we absolutely. love you all so much. A couple real quick shout-outs, and we'll get into the story. Megan Turner. <sighs> Megan, I'm sorry. <laughs> We're just batting a 1,000 for forgetting birthdays. Well, I, didn't, I don't know what happened in the middle of the week. Something crazy. I don't know what happened, but happy birthday to you, beautiful i'm so sorry that we didn't do it on wednesday but we're doing it tonight a couple days late and i hope you had a fabulous birthday 
Well, part of that, though, we recorded Wednesday's episode on Tuesday. See, I think that's so what threw me off. So we may have just forgotten. Yeah, nothing. but we love you, girl. Thanks for listening. And again, happy birthday to you, honey. Special congrats. You guys have heard uh, Annie Weebs on the show. She's mm-hmm. been on a couple times. She was at our live event in uh, West Virginia. If you went to the Point Pleasant show, Annie and Brendan Shea had a baby girl last night. Just under six pounds. Oh, and she's so beautiful. Rory May Shea. How cool is that? That's very cool. She's beautiful, just like her mama. So, congratulations, congratulations guys. Congratulations, honey. And uh, I think I think uh, the, she was a little bit early, if I remember correctly. Yeah, just a little bit, maybe. But, but she's doing good, so that's awesome. Yep. You should have just held out a little bit, because now you're going to get screwed out of Christmas presents down the road. <laughs> Your well, you know what? That was Christmas. the best Christmas present she could ever get. So, <laughs> yeah, for her ha- mom, yeah, for her mom, we're happy for, for the you. baby. She's <laughs> she's gonna miss out her whole life. Oh, nah, her birthday will be more important. <laughs> okay, let's get into the story. Are you ready for this? I'm t- uh, no, I'm not ready. No, you're not. Trust me, you're not ready. Oh for this. man! So we've covered a few possession stories on the show, and some have had somewhat good endings, where the person possessed is eventually released by. Uh, the demon or whatever it is that that's taking a hold of them and then they end up going on to lead a relatively normal life that was the case with roland doe which was the the little boy that the exorcist Mm -hmm. movie and the book was based off of then you got other stories like the annalise michelle which ended up with annalise passing away Mm -hmm. um during the the exorcisms and stuff that were going on Possession is really a tricky subject to kind of talk about because much of the, I guess, the belief system is going to be on a person's religious beliefs for the most part. And what I mean by that is what many people would consider possession, many people who aren't very religious would consider it a mental illness. Mm -hmm. So it really just depends on, is it possession? Is it mental illness? And that just kind of is always going to be a slippery slope when you talk about it. Tonight's story, as I said, has a very graphic ending that may be uh, the most horrific ending to any possession story that I'm familiar with. And sadly, I've got another one that's a close second that we'll do somewhere down the road. This is disturbing on so many different levels that I'm going to give you fair warning, like I said, that this may be one that you want to skip if you're squeamish. Or at least I'll give you an opportunity. I'll tell you when it's getting ready to get to that part, and you might want to just skip ahead like a minute or so. Mm -hmm. Because you'll be able to figure the rest of it out based on the rest of it. So when I say that some of the possession stories that we've covered have good endings and some have bad ones, this one definitely takes the cake. This is the story of Michael Taylor. Michael lived in a little town called Osset in England, and it's just outside of West Yorkshire. This story takes place in 1974. Osset, and if I'm pronouncing that wrong, it could be Osset, but I'm going to say Osset, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure several hundred will correct me. But it's a little small town, about 17,000 people. They had no clue what was about to happen within the confines of their city. 31-year-old Michael Taylor lived here with his wife and five children. They also had a pet poodle. Michael, by all accounts, from his friends and from his neighbors, was pretty much a great father and a great husband to his wife, Christine. 
he had suffered a really bad back injury, so he had constant pain. He was on painkillers and stuff to try to take care of the problem. Not a lot really helped him. So he had chronic pain on a regular basis. This caused him to struggle to find a steady job because obviously there was times where he had to miss work and would lose jobs or he just couldn't go to work and, and decided yeah. this job's too hard for me. I right. have to do something else. Mm-hmm. The lack of employment would lead to bouts with depression, you know, making you question you know, what type of a writer you are, uh, struggling financially, all these things. So he would struggle with depression because of that. Even so, he was a relatively happy man. And the family always seemed to be in good spirits, according to neighbors and mm-hmm. family members. The town they lived in was particularly religious community. Most members of the community went to church on a regular basis. The Taylors, though, weren't very religious, and they rarely attended any type of church services. That was going to change pretty soon, though. A friend of the family by the name of Barbara Wardman, she suggested that they check out this church that was a little different than most of the, the uh, churches that they had been to, so she thought that it might hit closer to home for them and actually be something they would grasp onto. It was called the Christian Fellowship Group, and it was headed up by a young lady by the name of Marie Robinson. And when I say young, she was 21 years old. Wow. Good for her. We'll see. So the family agreed to give it a try. Michael really took to the group. He felt that the group gave him some type of a purpose. So he was happy about that. Michael started going to services and participating in church events all the time. I mean, all the time. At this point, he was starting to go alone and spend less and less time with his family and all of his time at the church. Hmm. It became very clear to his wife that Michael may be infatuated with the church's leader, Marie Robinson, as well as just the church's offerings. So Michael was starting to take somewhat of a leadership role with the church alongside of Marie. For example... He would join Marie with uh, uh, other parts of the congregation there, and they would speak in tongues. They would do exorcisms on people um, so that their sins would be forgiven that were part of the congregation. They would also use the quote-unquote power of God to perform these exorcisms. Now, this is where it starts to get a little bit strange. They would do these little rituals with each other, her and, and, and Michael, where they would stay up all night long making the sign of the cross at each other. This was supposed to ward off evil spirits that were uh, supposedly brought on by full moons. You mean that's all they would do, would look at each other and make the sign of the cross? That's what the information I had said. Huh. So all of this is going on outside of the home, right? Well, at home, Michael was becoming a completely different person. So we mentioned earlier that he would spend less time with his family, but even when he was with his family, he seemed like he was ready for an argument almost all the time, very argumentative, very uh, disruptive, uh, very irritated, and it's it almost seemed that he had a disgust for his family, hmm, just man. sick of them. Well, that's not how you act when you go to church. No. So this was not the peaceful, happy-go-lucky Michael that most of the people knew from the past 
that that he was before he joined this church. It wasn't just his immediate family either that noticed that there was a a change in Michael Taylor. Close friends and family members noticed how he was clinging to the beliefs that seemed a little strange to some of them. Like, I guess, the moon spirits Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So not just that, but they also noticed his infatuation with Marie. So keep in mind, there's a 10 years difference between the two, because Michael was 31, she was 21. So his wife had had enough of this. She confronted Michael one night in front of the entire congregation. Ooh, ballsy. Yep. She accused him of cheating on her with Marie. This didn't go well. So Michael later stated that something evil came over him at this time. Okay? Mm-hmm. He lashed out, but not at his wife. He started yelling and screaming at Marie Robinson, the church's leader. So he approached her, and it looked to Marie and to the spectators standing around that he wanted to do her physical harm, Marie. Oh, dang. Several members of the church had to step in and actually separate the, separate Michael from her and remove Michael from the premises. Marie would later say that she looked at him, like right in the face, and all of his features had changed. He looked like an animal as far as his expressions. He kept looking at her with a wild look in his eyes. She said that she, scre- she screamed back at him in fear. Just, you know, I guess trying to be the more dominant of the two. She started speaking in tongues, and he spoke back to her in tongues. And at this point, Michael was attacking her. Like physically? Physically. He was attacking her, choking her. And she felt like Michael would actually kill her at that time. She said she started saying the name Jesus over and over again. And she said Michael's wife, Christine, she then started chanting Jesus' name as well. So now they're both chanting it. Are the kids seeing all this? I don't. I, I don't really know if the kids are seeing it or not. It didn't. Most of what I've read didn't really seem like the kids participated a lot in the church mm-hmm. stuff. It was just him mm-hmm. and and uh, his wife on occasion. So Marie seems to think that by uh, evoking the the name of Jesus is what ultimately actually saved her life that day. Michael claims that he doesn't have any memory of all of that, that entire event that night. And Marie, oddly enough, the very next day completely forgave him. And not just her, the whole, the whole church forgave him. So do you think and he welcomed him back? Okay. So you think he really doesn't remember? I don't know, but that's what he says. Wow. That's so scary and very forgiving of them for sure. Yeah. Cause I imagine if I had somebody trying to choke me to death, choke yeah. me out, I probably wouldn't be ready the next day, but, that's not to say that the incident was forgotten, because it definitely wasn't. And everybody around the church kind of made sure that they kept an eye on him the whole time, mm-hmm. just to make sure that he didn't step out of line again. His behavior only worsened, though, from this point. Several local ministers around town, because apparently there was a lot of um, a lot of these little church groups, local church groups, would do stuff together. Oh, that's nice. And several of the local ministers noticed that his behavior was erratic and it was violent and it was completely different than it had been. And they all kind of got together and said, Hey, we think there's demonic forces at work here. We probably need to do something. Mm. One of the ministers decided that an exorcism was in order. This was to take place on October 5th, 1974 
and if I'm pronouncing this wrong, but I think it's St. Tim's Church in um, the neighboring town of Barnsley. It's T-H-A-E-M-E-S. I think that's called the Thames River there in England. So okay. I think that's St. Tim's. Um, in this exorcism, Father Peter Vincent and Reverend Raymond Smith were going to be the two men that were given the responsibility to perform the exorcism. So the ritual lasted for several hours, well into the morning. We're talking uh, quite a daunting task. And it was pretty clear from the, from the very beginning that it was going to be a tough uh, road to haul there because Michael had to be restrained as soon as the exorcism started because he started basically cussing people. He was trying to scratch people. He was biting. He was spitting and having uncontrollable convulsions. Mm. So they pretty much uh, tied him down to the floor somehow. Uh, I don't know what they used, but he was on the floor, so they tied him to something. I'm not exactly sure. but Uh So the next part of this is a first for me. I've heard of a lot of different styles of exorcisms, but this is the first time I've ever heard of ministers shoving crucifixes into the mouth of the possessed person. What? They had sprinkled holy water on on crosses, and then they would shove them in their mouth. And during this part of the exorcism, he was being asked to confess his sins. So just picture this. Oh, my He's Lord. tied down on the floor. Yeah. And they're shoving crucifixes that have been doused in holy water into his mouth and telling him to confess his sins. Okay, so apparently they have never done an exorcism before. I don't know what they've done. Because I, I have never heard of anything like that either. Of course, I don't mean nothing, but that's just a whole different way of doing it. Yeah, it's completely a different approach. Mm-hmm. So he was growling and lashing out at anybody that would even come close to him during this time. So after all this, the ministers that were there determined that there were 40 demons inside of Michael. How is that even possible? I don't know. Wow. Because he wasn't a very big man. (laughs) Some of the demons were the demons of incest, blasphemy, bestiality, and carnal knowledge. By 8 a.m. on October 6th, the ministers were exhausted. And they decided they couldn't go on anymore. They just couldn't. So, here's the problem. They had only exercised... 37 of the 40 demons, according to them. They couldn't go three more demons. There were three more. Well, they said these three were clinging and holding on for dear life. They did not want to go. So they were going to have to finish the exorcism the next day, or at least later this day. Mm -hmm. Well, the three demons that were left were anger, insanity, and murder. Margaret Smith, she was the Reverend Smith, his wife, and she pretty much begged them to continue the exorcism. Why? Because she said God had spoken to her, and based on what she was told, they needed to continue. Mm -hmm. What was she told? I'm going to tell you that at the end of the show. Tease. So the ministers told Michael and Christine to go home, 
get some rest, and come back the next day. And they would finish the exorcism. What would happen two hours later would be the most heinous result of an exorcism that I've ever heard of. So this is the gruesome part. So if you don't want to hear this part, fast forward about a minute or so and we'll be over that part. And you can pick up. But if not, here we go. May I leave the room? You may not leave the room. Because you have to discuss. At 10 a.m. that morning, two hours later, Michael viciously attacked and killed Christine at their home. He gouged and ripped both of her eyes out of the socket. He strangled her. He tore out her tongue and ripped most of the flesh off of her face, all with his bare hands. He then grabbed their poodle and ripped it apart limb by limb. He ran out into the street, covered in blood, and completely naked. He was wandering the street screaming, It's the blood of Satan, over and over and over. Coincidentally, a patrol car was riding down the street, and they noticed Michael, covered in blood and naked, yelling stuff, and he pulled over to see what was going on. Uh Uh-oh. Nothing happened with that other than the fact that the policeman obviously knew something was gone. And the police officer goes to the house. Apparently, he was still pretty close to the house. He went to the house where he found uh, Christine's badly mutilated body and the dog strewn all around the floor in puddles of blood. Obviously... In a religious community, in a small town where things like this doesn't happen, don't happen, I should say, a media frenzy immediately followed all this. Where were the kids? I don't know. I don't know. There's only one other mention I see of the kids, which is a little bit later, and that was actually in the courthouse. So we'll get to that part. Like I said, this is obviously a very religious town and, and such a horrific crime with demons and exorcism attached to the story. It was going to draw a lot of interest. And we're going to talk about the trial right after this brief message from our sponsor. So this crime was so barbaric that the trial started off with Jeffrey Baker, who was one of the prosecution barristers, one of the attorneys there, telling the jury that the evidence they were getting ready to witness will make a difficult to believe will make it difficult to believe that you are not in the middle ages. Michael did testify on his own behalf. He stated that he didn't remember the crime or most of the events that led up to it. He told the jury that he had been under the control of evil forces and that he even believed that his wife had also been possessed by demons. Michael's defense wanted to kind of focus on the Christian fellowship group. The thought process was that Michael already had some mental issues with the depression and stuff that he had, and that the group was more like a cult and fed into this, which led to the ultimate crime. They felt like they used mind control, and, and they described this 
as neurotics feeding neurosis to a neurotic. That's what they felt like that, that the church basically was doing to Michael. They also laid blame at the exorcism itself. They felt like the ritual had fed off of warped ideals, beliefs, and religious fervor that he had picked up along the way just from being around this group and the things they had already been doing. These negative influences took a toll on Michael and ultimately caused what happened. So now, at the at, you know, they're saying that during the end of this exorcism, he's sleep deprived, he's mentally disturbed, with several hours of being told you have demons inside of you. This pushed him over the edge and actually caused him to commit the murder. Oh my God! More or less, he was brainwashed into doing it. Another attorney by the name of Mr. Ognall, he decided to speak up about the church's responsibility. He said basically that he knows that he wasn't supposed to have a personal opinion about a case that he was involved with. And he found it impossible, though, to sit there and listen to this testimony and not lay the true responsibility of what happened at the feet of the church. He said that ministers involved should be with him now and every day that he is incarcerated, and especially on the day that he meets with his motherless five children. And that's the only time that I heard anything mentioned about mm-hmm. his children during the whole rest oh of the gosh, research. This is like horrific. So when the verdict was actually handed down, Michael was declared legally and clinically insane. He was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital for the criminally insane, and there he would spend two years. And then he was released and sent to Bradford Royal Inn Infirmary for another two years. And after that, a grand total of four years, he was released as a free man into the public. Four years? Four years. Oh, whoa. So, obviously, exorcisms became a very heated debate after the situation. The exorcism involving... Michael Taylor was the last one that was ever performed by the uh, Anglican Church there in town. So that pretty much fixed that. Father Peter Vincent, who was the lead clergy on the exorcism, he said throughout the entire trial that Michael had been infested by demons and the church was not to blame for the murder. Michael and demons were to blame for the murder. Yeah. He said, I'm quite concerned that God will bring good out of all this in his own way. However tragic that it was at the time, if the psychiatrist said that the crime could not have been committed except for the exorcism, then that seems a rather strange thing to say. People will draw their own conclusions. So the psychiatrist said flat up that the exorcism is what caused the Mm -hmm. crime. And the priest is saying, no, and the the psychiatrist say that is pretty much a ludicrous statement because that's not what happened. So what about Michael after his release? Yeah, I want to know. He still had some odd behavior. He had his bouts with depression and even attempted suicide on four different occasions. In July of 2005, he was arrested for the sexual harassment of an underage girl. 
nothing that went on in these trials could have, could be used or held against that situation. So he had no prior convictions of sexual crimes or any kind of, of uh, uh, violent crimes or anything like that. So he was given three years of community service. He also had to go through further psychiatric evaluation to make sure he was staying on the right path. So what makes an average tempered person kill their wife in such a gruesome manner? Was it demons? Is it possible that demons tormented him to the point of him committing this heinous crime? Was it mental illness? Did he just, you know, let his back pain and depression take him to a point where he just snapped? Is that possible? Or was it simply a case of the church coercing him into believing that demons were inside him, causing a placebo-type effect, where they say it's there, so it must be there? Well, whatever reason it was, he should not have been let out of prison after four years. I agree. I mean, that is ridiculous. That's ridiculous, especially the awful thing that he did. I mean, that's horrid. Yeah, I agree. Uh, There's something like that. I mean, I can understand that, you know, you, you, you have to just be, you have to be kept under lock and key yeah, in I mean, one way, shape, or form. That's just beyond a sick mind for somebody to do that. Oh, I, I kind of mentioned earlier that during the exorcism that Reverend Smith's wife said that she pleaded with them to continue with the exorcism because yeah. she felt God had spoke to her. What did God supposedly tell her? She said she received a warning in her mind, just like a mental mm-hmm. thought, which said the demon of murder was going to escape and kill Christine. Oh. Why didn't she say that part? She did say that part. I just didn't tell you. Oh. I held on to it till the end. Ah. She told. Oh, That's my what she gosh. told the priest and them that she was told. And that could have all been prevented. Well. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, was it a situation where Michael heard that? Maybe that was part of the placebo thing. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe she says that out loud. He hears it. And in his mind, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. Whether that's reality or not. Yeah. And that's kind of what the psychiatrists and the doctors were saying along this whole case. Was, yeah, they kept, you know, you keep being told that there's demons inside of you and you're going to do bad stuff. It could cause you to go do bad stuff. It's like a hypnosis type thing. Mm-hmm. Well, thank goodness the kids weren't there. Yeah. yeah what a, apparently the kids weren't there. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, he probably would have did it all. Everybody. Or maybe not. Maybe he just would have done that. But poor doggy. It was very gruesome. Yeah. That's a really sick story. I'm sorry that happened to her. Hmm. So is he just roaming the streets now, I guess? I couldn't find anything that said he had passed away. So as far as I know, he's in his 70s and probably still living in England. Wow. I don't even know what to say about that. It's a horrible story. It is a very horrible story. And now I shall have nightmares. Yeah. So what do you hear the other exorcism story I got for you? It's a... a, a, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren case. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that, I don't know, three, four weeks in a row. Okay. So, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And next week, we got a cool story for you the Inuit village that just went missing. Wow. I can't wait to hear that one. Yeah. I would have done it this week, but I got a lot of research on how to pronounce some of these words. 
right, guys. Thank you so much. We love you guys, and we'll see you on Christmas Day. Love y'all.